0: Welcome back, everyone, to the armchair. I'm Andrew, and as always, I'm joined with my buddy Garrett. Hi, everybody.
1: Welcome back.
0: It's been a little while, but we have a hot list of topics to cover this episode, including uh, updates on the Ukraine Russian conflict, the Israeli brouhaha around trying to change the legislative rules and the ability of the Supreme Court to have oversight. And uh, finally, Finland is uh, joining NATO and how Turkey permitted that to occur, but has not followed through on Sweden.
1: Yeah, some very interesting topics. A lot of a lot of things happening in the news today. The Russian war in Ukraine. What's uh, what's going on there? What's happening? What are we seeing? What are we thinking? Well, we've we've
0: Haven't gotten together for an episode in a while, and I'll say I feel like the same is happening in the Russian-Ukrainian conflict right now. Bakhmut still stands amazingly.
1: Really amazing.
0: The chef uh, is being, seems to be whittled down, you know, to size, so to speak. I think he's, uh, I think he's the Sioux now. Yes, he's the Sioux chef. Exactly, exactly. I'm sure there are a lot of Russian officials who want to get him down to, like, busboy, but it hasn't happened. I... I think we'll we'll dive into that in a little more detail, but at a high level, the vaunted Russian, you know, winter offensive seems to be more of a whimper. Along the three main axes of advance, they haven't done much of anything. They've lost tens of thousands of troops. So I, I would love to hear your thoughts on how things are going. What do you think this means kind of tactically and strategically and then go from there?
1: Yeah, it's been a really interesting uh, few months. The winter offensive seems to be coming to an end without much change in the front lines. They've been fairly static since the new year along the Donetsk City-Bakhmut line line. After the fall offensive uh, where the Ukrainian forces pushed them out of the Kharkiv Oblast, the Russians out and and sort of solidified a defensive line with Russians controlling the majority of Luhansk uh, and probably about 50% or so of Donetsk, there has not been much movement. And the Russian forces have been throwing themselves into this grinding attritional warfare without much to show for it. As you said, Bakhmut uh, still stands, has just chewed up both Ukrainian and Russian forces, it should be acknowledged, but without sort of any strategic goal, it seems like the Russian Central Command still has no clear, concise tactical or strategic objectives other than fight everywhere with everything all at once.
0: Absolutely. And there's been no change in their ability to really fight in a combined arms in a modern fashion, um, or at least no significant improvement. I, to be honest, I'm shocked. I'm really shocked because I thought you had the winter, you pulled up, you know, in essence, conscripted 300,000 troops, you put them into the field. And yet you have not used them efficiently. I, I, read so, I read that for you for the Russians to just maintain their basic level of tank production, uh, or, their tank fleet, they need to produce something like 1,400 tanks this year and they don't have the ability to do it. So if you're not going to attack now and you're just going to get chewed up when is your counterattack going to happen? And if the plan is we're not going to kind of try and break this stalemate and we're just going to keep what we're holding, is that politically viable internally in Russia? I think the answer is probably no. Like so, some heads are going to have to roll if the thought is, okay, well, we've taken as much as we can. The The Russians, have, through their punch, didn't get much out of it. The Ukrainians are still girding their loins and getting ready to throw their punch. And I think it's going to be much more efficient, effective, and much better weaponry than the Ukrainians had when they took Kharkiv.
1: Yeah, the Ukrainians seem to use the winter period uh, to rearm, reorganize and refresh and play defense by and large so that they could set themselves up for a significant counteroffensive in the spring. And we'll see what comes of that. Their lightning quick counteroffensive at the uh, end of 22 really took, I know, took us by surprise. The feint down into Kherson, which, you know, I know we and I think most other analysts believed was going to be the main axis of advance. It turned out the main axis of advance was going to be in the north into Kharkiv and was incredibly successful example of mobilized uh, warfare with lightning quick. Uh, wrapped, rolled, rolled Russian forces up all the way to the border. And so now it looks like we're setting the stage for another major counteroffensive where Russia has uh, been slowing down their um, tempo. They're not able to throw as many forces into uh, enough places to really make a difference. And we'll see what happens in the spring. Absolutely.
0: And you know, when we look at what what's changed, right? So, not in large scale, but the Ukrainians now have Western main battle tanks, maybe 100, 200 of them. They have much better anti-missile defense, Patriots and other defense systems. They have received some MiG-29s from you know the countries in Europe that still have them. They have had... You know, over a year now, basically, to train up vast reserves using a mix of kind of the weaponry they already had, but more importantly, kind of NATO standard weaponry under the guidance of, you know, NATO members. And I think. What comes out here is going to be more like a NATO operation where all their equipment, by and large, is going to be Western, maybe not top of the line, but pretty close. And it's going to be a really interesting case to look back on and say, "Okay, well, they're still outnumbered, but how well do they do against a entrenched Russian military that... To be honest, at this point, is they're pulling out their old Soviet stockpiles to utilize. I wonder what's going to happen. But I think when we look at the wider perspective, there's a lot going on on the political side, too. We saw that there was a pro-Russian, pro-war military blogger who was just killed in St. Petersburg in an explosion at a cafe. There's a lot going back and forth about who blew up the Nord Stream 1 and 2 pipelines, there's some political pushback and forth on the Ukrainian Orthodox Church and how they have some pro-Russian factions.
1: There's a lot. There's a lot going on. Yeah, the Russian mill blogger or military blogger is really interesting. These guys are bloggers active on Russian social media channels who are often discussing in detail tactical, strategic, political news and information about the war, often they are former military themselves or relatives of former military, and often very pro-war and pro-the Putin government, but also very open to criticizing the conduct of the war. So in that sense, they give a, a real insight into the thinking in an otherwise very opaque box where these decisions are made and how the, how news of the war is circulating inside of Russia in, amongst people who are engaged. From that perspective, these guys are interesting and important sources of information to people who are looking to analyze what's happening. The details of this are pretty fuzzy. I, I don't have a good sense of why this particular mill blogger would have been targeted. These guys are hardcore putin fans usually and reserve their criticism for echelons beneath him shoigu the defense minister uh, and the military commanders in the field and even sometimes tactical commanders like colonels and even lower so i don't think this is probably russian internal security killing people it doesn't seem to make much sense to me again don't have a lot of details at this point. Could it be Ukrainian-hit teams in Russia? Potentially, but we'll uh, we'll have to stay tuned. I think the Orthodox Church is, is very interesting because Putin is explicitly incorporating the Russian Orthodox Church into his cultural movement. Obviously, the Ukrainian Orthodox Church has fairly close ties with the Russian Orthodox Church. Is there concern there? There's influence passing between the, the two patriarchs that's what the, the Orthodox denomination's head is called their their version of the Pope, if you like. And it's of concern, obviously, enough to the Ukrainian government to put pressure. This could be difficult. The president of Ukraine, Jewish. And so that, I think, adds a layer of complexity in a country that has a very complicated history between Jews and Gentiles to have a Jewish, a very prominent Jewish president. I don't know. This is, again, I'm just spec this purely speculative. I don't know that there's any existing tension there, but I I could foresee that being a big propaganda coup potentially for the Russians.
0: You know, the question becomes, what do you do? Do you, whatever the equivalent of excommunicating or defrocking, is, is that the approach? Do they just kind of try and isolate them? I know there's some questions over control of this very beautiful monastery in Kiev. Historically, more of a pro-Russian faction of the Ukrainian Orthodox Church. More to come when we know uh, one topic that I would love for us to discuss in a little more detail. The basing of Russian nuclear weapons in Belarus, kind of the geopolitical nature of it, as well as some comments from Lukashenko about Poland attacks us, we're going to use these nukes. I'll start, I'll say I think that's BS. He's not going to use nukes because the Belarusians are not going to have them. These are going to be Russian weapons under Russian control. Putin doesn't want something going wrong. Here, because then he knows the only target is Russia. So he wants to make sure if he even moves them there, that they're controlled. And I hate agreeing with Putin on anything, but I will say like not the most widely known, but the U.S. does station weapons in third countries, um, Turkey, uh, in Air Airbase, some um, other NATO countries. I think even the Netherlands has some U.S. nuclear weapons. The UK has their own and they have ours, so (laughs) it's been done before. I don't think we're putting them in places that are as, we're moving it into places that are as much of a hotbed as a country that's had, I don't want to call it failed revolutions, but the uproar that the country currently has and that interesting geopolitical place that Belarus is stuck in at this point
1: I mean, you bring up a really interesting point. Politics of nuclear weapons are almost as important as their theoretical use. Pre-positioning nuclear weapons in Belarus, as you say, you're totally right. These will be Russian weapons under Russian control. But it's provocative to forward position nuclear weapons in a country that's bordering an active war zone and is is very nearly a co-belligerent. The
0: launch point for repeated action,
1: right? Repeated, repeated invasions of their of their neighbor by the force that's now got nuclear weapons there. So it would be like NATO putting nuclear pre-positioning and announcing a pre-positioning of nuclear nuclear weapons in Poland or Finland. It's very provocative.
0: Or if the U.S. put them into South
1: Korea. Or South Korea, exactly. Yeah, or Taiwan. Russia has been fairly irresponsible in their nuclear rhetoric, and I see this as just an additional escalation. And what they're trying to do, I believe, is frighten the West, uh, the United States, and, and more specifically, probably, our European allies, most especially France and Germany, into reducing our support for Ukraine to a level where either Russia can outlast uh, our commitment altogether or create a frozen conflict in the East where neither side can win and it ends in a stalemate. And I think that, that has always been why he's used nuclear rhetoric in this way. You can see... On Russian television, in Russian news, and on and online, people increasingly discussing openly the use of nuclear weapons against the United States, against the UK, and other Western allies. Not so much use in theater, but sort of that nuclear saber-rattling. And I think it's trying to get us to back down.
0: When I look at the whole nuclear discussion, it, for me, it, I'm almost happy when it's said, because it, it, it comes from such a place of weakness. If you jump to that, you have nothing else to jump to. To me, it's just a sign that more and more people in Russia are realizing that this doesn't work. For example, do you remember how they said they were going to punish and smite the Finns and you know like all the Baltic countries? You don't hear anything anymore because they don't have the military to do it. They're sending him in the into the meat grinder that's the Ukraine. You know, the idea that you're going to nuke, use strategic nuclear weapons against the U.S. or others. Russia is not being invaded. The only one who's threatened to lose power is is Putin and his cronies. It's not the people, right? It's, it's not like the idea of a Russian state is going to disappear. It's just the people who currently have control may lose that mandate. That's not a reason to use nuclear weapons. As it relates to this kind of the geopolitics of the situation... There's been one thing that I think has gotten as much press as it probably should. Finland has been approved by Turkey, the last holdout, to join NATO. So now that fear that the Russians had about how oh, you're going to have, you know, you're going to be on our border, it's real. Finland, the country that has the long border, going to be in NATO in the next few days. I find this interesting. I think we should talk about it because of the politics of that decision by turkey there's one other country that was holding out but turkey was the main one they did not approve sweden at the same time and they were finland sweden were supposed to go into this as kind of a joint agreement but for some internal reasons which i i think we should discuss in some depth turkey said we will approve finland but we're not going to approve sweden i want to hear your thoughts on on why and how this relates to the internal politics of Turkey over the next
1: several months. Yeah, it's really it's really an interesting situation. Erdogan is the president of Turkey. Uh, he's got an election coming up. He's not doing so hot. His, his party is, is not the strongest at the polls. Major earthquake, major disaster, where a lot of questions about the government response have been raised. So for all these reasons...
0: 85%
1: inflation. 85% inflation last year. year. Yeah, huge issues inside of the Turkish economy. And he's been in power for quite a while. He is sort of the Viktor Orban of southern NATO slash Europe, where he's been slowly creating a near autocracy in Turkey, explicitly religious, which if if you know anything about the history of Turkey, is troubling Turkey established by Kemal Atatürk, the founder of modern Turkey, enshrined in the constitution of Turkey a explicitly secular government and organized the government of Turkey as as one that was not Islamic, which was obviously a huge departure from Ottoman rule prior to that, being explicitly the the caliphate. <laughs> the Ottoman Sultan was the was the caliph, so explicitly religious. Uh, and Erdogan has been slowly chipping away at that constitutional foundation. His party is, a, is an Islamic party. And that is really worrisome and has been for a long time. But I digress. Uh, so elections still matter in Turkey. a significant extent, he could get voted out of office and he clearly does not want that. And I think in my my read is he has agreed to the ascension of Finland to push off and insulate himself from criticism from other NATO allies because Turkey could get kicked out of NATO. They are not a a critical member state. Not that that ever would probably happen, but he probably doesn't need one more thing to worry about. They've
0: already been sanctioned for buying S four hundred air defense systems, and yeah,
1: they're they're not a good ally
0: now. Pre historically, I mean, they I believe there were Turkish troops in the Korean War. Like historically, they were very steadfast. Um, you know, putting aside the fact that the military had three or four coups against elected leadership, like putting that aside, they were strong bulwark against the Soviet Union. So historically, there were strong ties and it made sense. But <clears throat> the way Erdogan is moving, you know, he he frustrated a lot of his neighbors and near neighbors in, the, in his backyard that are U.S. allies. His utmost thought is actually similar to Putin in the sense of, like, I must remain in control. I think he honestly thinks that, like, his purpose for being is to lead the Turkish state into a new generation of pious Islamic brotherhood-esque governance and belief. He he kind of brought this upon himself, to be perfectly honest, in the sense of he made a big deal out of Sweden because there are some of his Gulenist. Uh, opponents who he blames for the coup attempt against him that are there as well as some of the the kurds who happen to to have gone into exile there in a country that has strong freedom of speech that he he doesn't like that that they aren't breaking local laws they're pointing out his failures or they're pointing out why what he's doing is is the wrong direction and they can do it freely there without him being able to really exert a ton of pressure and i think he dug this grave of he made this a big deal and put it out publicly that this was a problem the swedes they don't think it's a problem i mean there's plenty of opposition folks from many countries that are in other places that you don't say anything about but i think he made this politically infeasible for himself to approve it going into an election in which he's getting hammered by all these other things. He has to now hold out for no other reason than he said he wouldn't do it. And now he's going to get pressure, but I think you're right. Finland was the re- relief valve. I mean, that's the country that actually has the most significant border with Russia. You know, Sweden being in between <laughs> Norway, you're kind of um, de facto going to have to let them in at some point. Uh, it would make no sense. But I think What's going to happen? If he gets reelected, he'll do it, you know, a couple months after he gets reelected. If he doesn't get reelected, the new president, you know, whether they remove the presidential system and go back to a parliamentary system, they will, and become like a prime minister, they will assuage to the to the ascension of Sweden to, to NATO. I
1: think it's a good, I think it's an astute uh, read on what's happening Politically and the pressure on Erdogan to and and why he would accept Finland and not Sweden, I think that's probably a good read. And just uh, just on background, the Gulenist faction was uh, a there were a group of um, Turks who attempted a a coup in 2016 against Erdogan. Uh, That coup failed, and a lot of those guys then fled to other EU countries. Uh, most especially Sweden, which is a very permissive policy on refugees and asylum seekers. And there are a lot of Turks and a lot of Kurds and a lot of other um, Arabs who have resettled in in Sweden. And so openly criticized Turkey. And so that has created some hostility between uh, Turkey and Sweden. And probably the reason, as you said, for Erdogan's reluctance to admit them to NATO, just kind of a a poke in the eye. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see if he gets reelected. I I suspect he probably will. Um, he, he's made it pretty hard to dislodge some him. way, somehow. some way, somehow. Yeah, uh, stuffing ballot boxes, perhaps. He, yeah, Finland being in NATO <laughs> de facto makes Sweden in NATO, and those countries were already pretty well integrated into a force structure in in the European defense. Fin- the Finnish ambassador to the U.S just recently in an interview, uh, was pretty explicit that his country, while it wasn't officially in NATO, trained with NATO forces, used NATO weapons, was familiar with NATO tactics, and was very closely aligned with NATO strategy, such that if war ever broke out, Finland was confident that it could and would fight alongside NATO forces uh, in Finland as well as elsewhere in Europe. This is sort of putting a final bow on that. and And really, to me... Just signals just the absolute failure of the this Russian war in Ukraine from a strategy perspective. He's about doubled the size of the border Russia has with NATO members. <laughs> Pretty bad when he when the whole point of the war was to keep Western influence further away from Russia's borders.
0: Absolutely, and we should have a forward-looking statement here. I I think Erder. Erdogan is going to stay the president. I'm not sure he would give up, honestly, if he lost at the polls. He's had 20 years of what seems to be, from the outside, certain governance with questionable activities, levels of corruption, potentially, kind of insider dealing. He's kind of like Putin in a sense, like, can he actually give up power now? Because I don't know if he could stay in... In Turkey, if he did that, this election may get really messy. Opposition is basically his main opposition is a it's a bunch of parties that have come together to try and once and for all get rid of him. And they agree on a handful of things. And that's what they're basing their their election on. And they're really pushing hard. They're currently uh, polling better than Erdogan. And they're pushing really hard to get the Kurdish vote actually, because the Kurds make up something like 15% of the population. And I think if they can do that, numerically, Erdogan would have a very hard time winning if he basically had all the opposition groups under one person. And I I wonder what will happen there uh, if this is going to look like Iran, where everyone thinks their candidate won. Maybe they're even told they won. But the next morning... Uh, that person's under house arrest and Erdogan is, says he, he's going to stay on. Or even if it gets close to the election, he thinks he's going to lose. Does he declare a state of emergency and push off the election?
1: I find it difficult to imagine a, a peaceful transition of power from an Erdogan government to some successor government. I, it's, I, I think he is going to be president for life. And it's disappointing because you know Turkey was a fair is a it was a fairly functional a, a democracy in the Middle East. Yeah, I don't see it. I don't see it working that well. I think if it's not outright cheating and where he wins, it will be uh, a state of emergency that delays the election indefinitely or some other contrivance where power is not is not given up freely. On the subject of democracies in that part of the world. Pretty interesting stuff going on in Israel. Oh, this is this is
0: crazy in a way. And and I'm no lawyer, so I and I don't know the intricacies of the Israeli system particularly well. But at a high level, what my read of it is is the coalition government of Netanyahu is who has, I think, a one person majority in their upper house or in their are pushing an amendment that would allow the legislature to have laws pass and and, and other regulations be exempt from review by the Supreme Court. One, and two, <clears throat> make it harder for the Supreme Court to state or exclude people from serving in high office by making them ineligible. And obviously it's troubling coming from someone who I think has, oddly enough, Netanyahu actually seems somewhat rational compared to some of the folks that he's aligned himself with in these coalitions. He has, I think, three bribery or other types of misuse of of resource complaints against him that are outstanding that have been for a long time. He has partnered with the most right wing of groups who led the charge to make the Israeli constitution like push specifically for Jews, excluding others. He's trying to push this through. And due to this, there have been street protests. It got so bad, his their defense minister, so Netanyahu's defense minister, came out publicly against it, was fired. And then there were even more protests to the point where he had to postpone the, the final reading of this law uh, until after, I think late late April. So it's not done, but he postponed it. You basically had all civil society groups, or most of the large ones, coming out and, and they stopped the country from functioning. Schools were closed, unions stopped working. The military said this wasn't the right approach and was causing division. They had a, a top fighter air squadron say they wouldn't they wouldn't practice anymore. If this was still going for it, so things that you've never seen. Before.
1: Yeah, I had read that a large segment of the Israeli population had said they would not participate in the armed forces if this law were passed, which is, if you know anything about Israel, essential to the survival of the state because uh, military services is uh, compulsory. It's yeah mandatory. Everybody has to serve them after... Is it after high school or after college? It's
0: after high school, before college. Yeah.
1: And so if uh, if a huge portion of the population says is saying no to that, um, it puts Israel in a very difficult position. Uh, and the defense minister refused to support the law, then was fired, and that caused all these street protests. So it was like, it's really... Netanyahu's in a really tenuous position because... He's between a rock and a hard place. The majority of the population is very strongly against it and has been very politically activated in a way I don't think we've seen in quite a while. But then the hard right elements in his coalition, in his governing coalition, will will not probably back down off of this position. Can't come to some resolution. Uh, it's likely the government would fall apart. And then they would have elections again for like the fifth or sixth time in in four years they've not had a, they've not had a strong go- governing coalition in Israel for uh, quite a while since the last Netanyahu led center right or right government and it seems like that government has only moved harder right and the population has not gone with them <laughs> so very difficult period politically i think in israel and we'll have to stay tuned and see what comes of it and a troubling law i mean and very troubling uh, anti-illiberal anti-democratic law well the the thing that i can't
0: get is it basically castrates one of their the pillars of their government right so you it would be as if the legislative branch here in the u.s said everything we pass as a law None of it is subject to Supreme Court oversight. So you have these weird, and and they can do that with a 50 plus one vote, 50% plus one vote. So you don't need a super majority. You don't need anything. It's just, can it pass? Yes, no. If so, it can't be reviewed unless it touches on like the basic law there, which has just some few principles that the government has to rely upon. And it also, it limits the judiciary's ability to basically say certain people cannot act in government service because they've been found ineligible you look at it and you say like these guardrails of the society they're trying to just remove them and i don't know if they thought this through logically to be perfectly honest because there's nothing that would stop the following coalition
1: from unwinding it. it's red meat for the far right base of netanyahu's support uh, the the ultra conservative, ultra orthodox members of that coalition government w- want to see this stuff enacted. And that's I think that's why it's being done without much consideration to the impact, which is troubling. Obviously, not just not just to us, but to the average Israeli.
0: Oh, for sure. And when you think about it, the US Israel relationship has always been based on like Not just, okay, we need an ally in that area, but you were an ally in that area that had our values, like whose values matched pretty closely. If that separates, there's no longer that alignment there. I wonder what would happen in that relationship, to be perfectly honest. If they went the route of the dictator, it would be, the way we look at that relationship would be very different.
1: And that cleave, I think, has already begun... A little bit uh, during the Trump Netanyahu period because uh, Netanyahu was sort of, it became explicitly pro Republican, explicitly pro Trump. And previous Israeli governments had been studiously apolitical in terms of Republicans and Democrats. They had been very supportive of presidents of any party that supported Israel and Israel's interests. And so that was sort of bipartisan. But Netanyahu has become a very polarizing figure I think here as well as in Israel. So, you know, it's it does lead you to question the longevity of the US-Israeli relationship when it becomes contingent on who is in the White House. It's already not popular with the most liberal elements. Israel Israel security and our security relationship with them is already not popular among um, the most liberal elements of the democratic party and, and the far, the far left and certain elements of the far right. If you begin to disassemble that bipartisan support does it, it could really damage Israeli security in the medium and long terms.
0: Absolutely. And this is going to play out in real time because this coalition doesn't have forever. And Netanyahu is stuck between a rock and a hard place. His, his, Coalition won't support him unless he moves forward on this. It's going to be interesting how far Will Netanyahu goes before he internally says this isn't the right path for the country. Because his only option then is to basically give up his prime ministership and move on and go to an election where he may not be in power. So I think rarely do you see these moments where the choice is so directly in one person's hand... Does he choose himself or does he choose Israel, the population of Israel, relationships they forged on the on the world stage? Or is it uh, is it all about Benjamin?
1: All about B.B. All right. Well, on that note, I want to thank everybody for joining us on this episode of Armchair Generals. If you enjoyed the podcast, please like subscribe, leave a review. All that stuff helps uh, listeners find us. And if you have any comments, uh, please go ahead and uh, leave them below on your podcatcher of choice. Thanks again. Uh, I've been Garrett. And with me, as always, has been Andrew. And we will be back at you next week with some more geopolitics, news, and world events.